sermon title is called A Test of Faith. Um, you know, growing up, my uh, favorite character and my favorite movie uh, was Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. To say that he was my role model would be an understatement. To say that he was kind of my center, my everything, would be an understatement. Uh, the idea of a professor of archaeology by day and a treasure hunter by night, it, it, it tingled me. It, it made me so happy, right? I had never before seen in my life another man whip another man. And that kind of also, you know, was really pretty cool to me as a, as a young child. You know, at the very end of The Last Crusade, Indiana Jones, what we see is he's gone through all of these different things, but at the very climax, he needs to save his father. And at this movie, this is the third movie, the way that he can save his father, the way that he can redeem everything that's happened is to pass three separate tests. Now, the first two tests are pretty simple. In that, rel relatively, they're pretty simple. The first one is a requirement of his strength and his speed. The second test is one of his intellect and, and how well he knew history and theology. And he was able to pass both pretty well. Now, the last test for Indiana Jones was different. Because the last test was a test of faith. Indiana Jones, you see, he goes to the very edge of a cliff. He's looking out. And he realizes that this test is called the leap of faith. Because he's looking out over this dark chasm and sees that there is nothing there. And so he has to make a choice. And that choice is, will he turn back or will he take a step of faith even when he can't see? Is he going to turn back or is he going to trust even when everything is dark? And so what does Indiana Jones do? He takes a breath, takes a step, and we find out that a bridge was there all along. Now, why am I talking about this? You see, for us in our lives as Christians, we are going to go through tests of faith. And there's going to be a lot of times when there's going to be trials and things that enter our lives, and we're not going to know why they come, and we're not going to be able to see the result of what's going to happen, and we're not going to see what's right in front of us. And yet what God is going to ask us to do is to simply trust Trust that even in our darkness, he is able to see light. Trust that even when we are blind, he is able to see. All throughout the Bible, it says that God will test our faith. In Deuteronomy 8, it says that God will test us in order to show what is in our hearts. In Psalm 139, it says, search me and know my heart. 
and test me and know my thoughts. But church, here's the thing. Tests of faith are not like regular tests. They're not going to test your intellectual ability. They're not going to test your strength or your speed. They're meant to, tre- they're meant to test your trust in God. In other words, a test of faith is answering this question, are you going to trust even when you cannot see? Are you going to trust simply because you know that God can see? And that's the definition of faith. You see, faith is the opposite of sight. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, For we live by faith and not by sight. And Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we cannot see. And so church, what I want to do today is, this past week as I was kind of praying about what to speak on, kind of the idea of faith was on my mind. Because I know that for a lot of us, whether it's been something that happened before when COVID started or whether it's something that is continuing to happen now, some of us are being tested in our faith. Some of us are going through a lot of trials, a lot of suffering, a lot of hardships, and we're wondering how to make sense of all of that. Now, I'm not saying that I have all the answers today, but what I wanted to do was look at a very famous example of a test of faith, possibly the most famous example of a test of faith in the Old Testament. And that was when God tested Abraham and sacrificing his son Isaac. And what I wanted to see were three things here. First is the purpose of the test of faith. Second is to see the meaning of the test of faith. And third is how to pass the test of faith. All right? That's all we're going to do today. Now, first, the purpose of the test. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Now, what is the purpose of the test of faith? The reason why God tests our faith is to find our foundation. You know, in the, late, in the early 1900s, there was a British uh, minister named Martin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he was this really great man of faith. He, sh- he shared his testimony a few times. And he said that when he was in his late 20s, he was actually a doctor. He was actually a very up-and-coming doctor. He graduated from a very good medical school in London. He was working in a very famous uh, hospital called St. Bartholomew's. And at that time, he wasn't a Christian. And for him, faith didn't really matter. One day, a friend comes up to his room, and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones finds out that this man's girlfriend had tragically died. Now, his friend was a very wealthy man. He had a lot of things. 
And even though Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a lot, he was still envious of this friend. This friend sits down by the fire and for two hours doesn't say a single word to Dr. Jones. Instead, all he does is he has this dejected and disappointed and hurt look on his face as he stares into the fire for two hours. And then after those hours, gets up and walks away. Dr. Jones said that this moment This single moment was scarred into his mind because it shook him to his very core. Because for the first time, he realized that even the most powerful and the most prosperous could fall apart in any moment. You see, he had this awakening that the foundation he had built as a doctor and as a wealthy person and the social status that he had could be taken away at any single moment. And he says that it was this moment that he began to seek after God because he said that in this moment, he realized an important truth, that without God, there are no foundations. You see, without God, all the foundations that we try to build aren't really foundations at all. Hebrews 11.10 echoes this because it says Abraham lived by faith because he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. It doesn't say a city like the other cities with different foundations. It says the city with the foundation. What it is saying is that the other cities that you try to build up on your social status, on your wealth, on every other thing is not actually going to hold you up at all. Because this world is very good at one thing and it's very good at convincing you that your social status and that your wealth and that everything you build up here is going to lead you into the future. That as long as you pave the road with those things, as long as you build those things, that your future is going to be secure. That your identity is going to be set. And yet what we know this, what we know to be true, is that the world will fall apart in any single moment. What greater example of this than this year? We had so many plans for what we were going to do. I remember in the beginning of the year, I gathered all the life group leaders together. I gathered all of the EM leaders, and I talked to them about what we were going to do this year. I don't know if the life group leaders remember, but I I had this huge bulletin board of of 10 pages of paper that I was going to fulfill and I was going to do. I spent so much time on that. You have no idea. I had written down everything that I was planning because I was so excited for what this year was going to produce because I was so assured, I was so set that this was going to be the year of breakthrough and I was ready for that. And in a second, in an instant, all of that disappeared because the minute that we were supposed to be doing the actions of community, of barbecues, of gathering together was the exact timing when we were supposed to not be meeting at church. It's crazy how that worked out. And yet what I've become assured of again and again is that when God says that this is the year of breakthrough, that he is going to follow through with what he has promised. 
And that even though it is not fulfilling my expectations, that these are the exact expectations that he had from the very beginning. And so for Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones as well, you see, for him, he understood this one fact here. That there is nothing that will keep his foundations. That there is nothing here that he can build upon other than the word of God. The only thing that will last is the truth of the Bible and the character of God. The only thing that's true is Hebrews 13.8. When it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That his character in loving the Israelites is the same character for us today. That he is the same God who is all loving, who is all kind, who is gracious, who endures, who is slow to anger. And that is the same God who loves us today. And that even in the trials of what we're going through, that even in the shadow of death, that even in the trials we are going through, the God that, who, that God who has protected the Israelites, the God who has parted the Red Sea, the God who has done all these different things is the same God that we worship today. You see, God, he was testing Abraham in order to find his foundation. Look at what verse 2 says. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. It almost seems like God is poking in at Abraham. I mean, he could have just said, take your son. Why is he trying to say all of these different things? It's because God is pointing out something really important for Abraham. He says, take your son, your only son. Isaac was Abraham's only son. Ishmael was gone. There was no one else. Every promise, every hope, every expectation was laid squarely upon the shoulders of Isaac. God knows this. And it's why he says, take your only son. Not only that, he says, whom you love. Abraham loved Isaac. Just as a father loves their son, Isaac, man, he was the fulfillment of a long-awaited promise. He was the blood of my blood, the bones of my bones. He was, he was Abraham's. He was the emotional center for Abraham. And so what God is pointing out is, look, it is easy for you, Abraham, to put Isaac as your center, as your foundation. You see, God in saying this one sentence is saying, I am testing you in order to find your foundation. Is it in Isaac or is it in me? That was the purpose. Now, what is the meaning of this particular test? Because when we look at this, man, it looks so strange. We understand the purpose, right? When we can understand that God would test the foundations, but why would God go through this extreme? It seems like that doesn't make sense. It seems like so out of God's character, almost. And yet, one thing that was interesting as I was studying this passage, as I was going through different commentaries, as I was going through different books, is that our understanding of the firstborn child is very different today than it was a long time ago. You see, in our modern culture, 
being the firstborn child isn't that important. I'm not only saying that because I'm the youngest and I have a complex, but I'm saying that because it's the truth, right? It's the truth. We, we are a lot more individualistic as a culture, and for us, being the firstborn isn't as big of a deal. You see, but back then, everything was based on the family. Everyone and how they were driven and what they wanted and their motivation was all based upon the family's success. It was based upon the family's prosperity. And this was connected to something called the law of the firstborn that was only done back then. Now, what is the law of the firstborn? This law stated that the oldest would receive the entire inheritance from his father. Here's why. Everything back then was based on your social status. Everything was based on your reputation. And so if a family had a certain amount of land or wealth, if they didn't have this law in place, then what they would end up doing was dividing all of this inheritance, all of the land and all the wealth by, if they had, say, 10 children, into 10 different ways. And what would happen is that family would lose its status within that community. Everything that they had built up, everything that they had worked for would be gone in a minute, in an instance. So to combat this, they would give everything to the firstborn. And that what would happen is the firstborn would be the benefactor, would be the person who would provide for the rest of the family. This way, everyone would still be provided for and the status would still be intact. Now, what this meant is that naturally, the firstborn took on a huge importance. They would be looked on as the ultimate hope for their family. The future of the entire family would hinge upon having that firstborn child. Everything would revolve around that. But you see, as I was reading here, what scholars realized is that when you look at the Bible, God lays down a principle to his people because he knows how important this law is. He knows how important this reputation is. And so the principle he lays out is this. The only way that you can pay for your sins is by giving me your firstborn. Think about it. The firstborn of all the animals, of the cattle, of the sheep were given to God. The first fruit of the season were given to God. During the Passover even, God comes down in judgment and what does he demand first above everything else? The firstborn. But what's interesting also is that we know the Israelites didn't have to give up their firstborn sons. Instead, God, he tells them, look, kill a lamb instead and I will take that in replacement. This isn't the first time that God allows a replacement. We see that in Numbers, that the firstborn son is able to, re, 
is to be redeemed, is able to be redeemed if a payment of shekels is made for him. That's why this sacrifice makes sense. That's why for Abraham, even though we may think that it seems so far-fetched, even though we may think it's so outrageous, this word from God would have made absolutely complete sense to Abraham. If Abraham heard a voice saying that he should sacrifice his wife, scholars say he would not have done that. That would not have made sense. However, God wasn't asking Abraham to murder someone. He was telling Abraham that payment needed to be made for his sins. This was the meaning of the test here. And it's why Abraham must have been so devastated, and yet at the same time, he would have understood why he was walking up that mountain, why he was going up with Isaac. There was sin in his life, so God was only taking what was rightfully his. But here's the thing. And here's the thing that we have to also keep in mind, that although God was a God of judgment, yes, he was also the God of promise. And as much as God demanded sacrifice, and as much as God demanded the firstborn, he also promised Abraham that he would do a great work through his lineage, that he would bring salvation through his, hair, through his heir, and that he would be able to do this and so for Abraham, he was grappling with these two ideas. That God, yes, he's a God of judgment, but at the same time, God had promised him all of these different things. And so for Abraham, though, all he could do was simply walk up the mountain and get ready to prepare his son for the altar. And this leads us to our last point is understanding how to pass the test of faith. You see, for Abraham, the way that he passes this test of faith is by doing one thing, is by seeing God, seeing God. Verse 7 and 8 says this, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the wood for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now what other scholars have said is that when you look at this passage as a whole, everything goes by so quickly. God speaks. Abraham obeys. He wakes up the next morning. They begin to walk up. And then all of a sudden, in these verses, 7 and 8, everything slows down. And everything becomes a lot more detailed because they're saying that this is becoming the emotional center of what is all about to transpire. Seven and eight are actually the only places in the Bible where we hear Abraham and Isaac actually speak to one another. And realize what it says here too. They're walking up the mountain for three days. For three days, Abraham is thinking about sacrificing his son. 
And at the very top, when they finally get there, Isaac asks where the offering is. And Abraham answers. And you see, the answer is where it's so important. The answer that Abraham gives is the crux of how we are going to be able to not only endure and persist through our test of faith, but to pass our test of faith. Because he says this to Isaac, God will provide. God will provide. God will do it. God will see us through. I think for a lot of us, when we think of Abraham walking with uh, Isaac up, those, up that mountain for three days, we think, look, he was probably saying to himself, look, I, I have to obey. I, I have to do this. I can do this. I can do this. I, I have to go. I have to do this. But actually look at what he says to Isaac. God will provide the lamb. In Hebrew, you see, the word that Abraham uses for provide is actually the exact same word that he uses for the word to see. And this is what Abraham is saying. He's saying, look, I know that you can't see the lamb. And I know that I can't see the lamb. But God is able to see the lamb. He is the one who is able to see what is about to happen. And look, Isaac, I know that you can't see the future. And I know that I can't see the future. And I know that you are as confused as I am, and I'm not sure what's going to happen. But at the end of the day, I trust in God. And I trust that he is going to provide for me. And I know that he is going to provide for us. And I know that even though I can't see, and it's just a chasm in the dark, that he is the one who is able to see all things. And that if he has led us this far, that he is going to lead us through this. So God will provide the lamb. God is going to see us through. And so all this whole time, I am not trusting in myself. I am not trusting what I am going to do in my obedience or what I can persevere. I am simply trusting in the fact that God is going to see this through. All I can do is trust in the character of God. That is the only way that I can survive this. That is the only way that I can trust in this. It is the only way that I can follow through, persevere, and pass this test of faith, Isaac. Look, this is not any type of faith in himself. It's not I can do it. It's not I must do it. It's simply God will do it. God is leading me through this. God sees my path. It's trusting that God loves us and is going to provide for us. Maybe it's not in the way that you expected, but it's in the way that he planned. Look, it says that Abraham and Isaac were walking up the mountain of Moriah. Now this mountain range, Church later, it would encompass a place called Calvary as well. And years later, we know that as Abraham led his son up into the altar, our Heavenly Father led his own son, his only son, whom he loved, to die as a living sacrifice to be nailed to the wooden cross 
so that he could watch as the fiery wrath would come down and consume him. You know, Ravi Zacharias, who's this famous uh, apologist, was speaking to a Muslim man about this passage. And after going through this story, he says, look, brother, do you realize that 2,000 years ago, God provided the ultimate sacrifice of his own son? And until you and I receive the son that God has provided, you and I will always be offering our own sons and daughters into the battlefield of this world. For us, man, the longer we trust in this world, the more that we try to build our foundations here, the more our hearts and our minds and our thoughts will go up and down like the wind. And church, look, maybe our faith is being tested. Maybe your faith is being tested at this very moment. But realize what it says in Psalm 23. There's that really intimate and really powerful part where it says, although I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He's saying that though things may be dark, and though I may not be able to see in this valley, I trust that the shepherd who has led me in it will lead me through it. And I trust that even though I can't see how far this rabbit hole goes, I can't see how dark and deep this chasm is, God sees it. God knows. And he is the one who is going to lead us. So have hope and trust in the Lord and cast your anxieties and your thoughts and your heart to him. Amen? Let's pray. God, I just want to pray right now.